out in the deep blue wilderness, about a thousand miles from Tahiti. The novice Hawaiian navigator, uh, Nainoa, scared, doesn't know yet how to read uh, the waves. And Mao, the master Micronesian navigator, he's staying back, he's not saying much. And Nainoa, trying to figure out where he is. Uh, Mao says, do you know where you are? And Nainoa says, no, I don't know where I am. Mao says, can you, can you see the island? Nainoa says, I can see it in my mind. Keep the vision in your mind, said Mao. If you lose the vision, you'll be lost. Keeping the vision in our mind, holding the vision. The island of our vision is, uh, is peace, is the fulfillment, the fruit of practice, becoming tatagara. Tatagara is the Pali term for a, a fully enlightened being. It means literally, thus gone. Another interpretation is one who has become authentic. One who has become authentic. Fully accomplished. Free of greed, hatred, delusion. So we hold that in mind. It's the island in, in our mind. We don't lose the vision because we become inspired. We're inspired then to transform the energy of that vision into our practice. Each step along the way. We experience some a momentary accomplishment. Every moment of pure mindfulness is without greed, hatred, and delusion. Momentary peace. We experience uh, degrees of accomplishment through deep insight and stages of awakening where there's that partial accomplishment where greed, hatred, delusion are diminished. Our canoe is the Eightfold Path our vehicle to liberation toward this vision of the island of peace in the mind. The Eightfold Path is the path of love and understanding. I'm going to tell a story of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, in one of his many former lives. The power of story or myth helps us give a sense, uh, experience a sense of, of place in the timeless moment. For the path of spiritual awakening uh, is not in linear time. It is in the timeless moment. So mythology, uh, the power of story, helps put us in mythological time, in the sidesteps the intellect a bit. So listen carefully. Once the Bodhisattva was born as a goose. In this life, his powers as a Bodhisattva uh, were speed, along with compassion and skillful means. He'd fly so fast 
in the ancient country of India that it was if, as if uh, a golden cloud were spread across the sky. So one day he was doing this in the vicinity of uh, the king um, of Varanasi or Banaras, and he who looked up and saw this golden blanket and wondered what such a cloud like that was doing in his sky. And then as the, the bodhisattva goose began to slow down, little cracks and crevices appeared and light shone through and he saw that at the head of this cloud of gold was a goose. And he thought, this must be a king like myself. And indeed, the bodhisattva was, uh, was king to 90,000 geese. And they lived up in the mountains uh, the, of the Himals, the foothills, where they, they grazed sweet wild rice and large lakes and had a good home. So the human king wanted to be friends and sent his emissaries out to bring gifts of incense and music and flowers. And the bodhisattva saw them coming and greeted them and returned gifts in kind. Well, one day in his speedy flights around the planet, the, the bodhisattva stopped in the south of India and picked up a rare sandalwood powder, placed it under his wing. And then he flew up to the, the headwaters of the Ganges River and took some of the freshest holy water out of the Ganges. And then he flew back to Benares and found his friend the king out in the countryside by his private lake where he was getting a tan. And he came up and he sprinkled the holy water on him and then a mist of the sandalwood powder that cooled and soothed his body. And he was so happy, so happy. And he fell so deeply in love with his friend the goose and could always count on him coming, couldn't wait for his presence and their conversations. So one day, up back up in the, in the mountain refuge, two of the youngest geese of the tribe of the flock uh, came up to the bodhisattva king and said, we want to fly fast like you. So we're gonna, tomorrow we're going we're gonna to race against the sun from Mount Yagundara. And the compassionate king said, hmm, you know not your limitations. The sun is very swift and you would certainly perish. Ah, okay said the two young geese, and they went to bed. And the bodhisattva woke up just at the glow of dawn. He scanned his flock and noticed that there were only 89,998. Guess which two were missing. So he smiled and quickly flew to the peak of Mount Yugundara, and there, of course, were the two young geese. He says, okay, we're going to race against the sun. And the moment the sun hit the tip, the three took off. They flew and they flew and they glided in the air currents, soared high, soared low. And long about late morning, just before uh, the noontime, one of the geese began to falter and cried out, there's fire in my wings. You were right, we're going to perish. I'm not going to make it, I'm afraid. With a sweet, compassionate voice, the bodhisattva said, don't worry. I'll take care of you. Took him on his wing, flew back to their, their lake in the Himalayas, soothed them in, 
in the company of, of other geese cooling his wings in the waters. Then quickly flew back and joined the other, other goose. She was going along fine and strong, but sometime in the afternoon her wings also caught fire and she felt the pain and the loss of energy and started to drop and said, I, I'm not going to make it. And the Bodhisattva said, don't worry, I'll take care of you. Took her on his wing and flew quickly back to the lake at their refuge, left her in the company of the other geese, soothing her pain in the waters. And then the Bodhisattva thought, today I myself will race the sun. Went all the way back to Mount Yagundara where they had started that morning and took off, flying, soaring, as fast as his own thought. Soon caught up immediately with the sun and then went way ahead of the sun to the land where it was dark, where sun was only now approaching. And then flew all the way back behind the sun to the land where the light of the sun was leaving. So fast, so swift, so smooth. The Bodhisattva thought to himself, hmm, this is folly. I can beat the sun, so what? I think I'll go see my friend and we'll talk Dharma. So first of all, he flew over all of India so fast that that golden blanket covered all of India and then in smaller concentric circles until this golden carpet was just over the province of Varanasi or Benares. And then only slightly slowed in various places so rays of light would appear through the cracks, crevices. And then more slowly so that the sunlight mingled with the golden rays of the speed of the golden goose. And the king looked up, the human king, and knew it was his friend, was so delighted and knew he was coming soon. And sure enough, on his windowsill, the bodhisattva showed up moments later. And the king said to him, Ah, far out, I'm so happy to see you. You know, what's, what's been up? What's, what's been happening today? And brought him in and set him on his golden throne and served him sweet water and golden and uh, sweet golden mountain rice aged for three and a half years and treated him so kindly and warmly said tell me what's happening so the, the bodhisattva explained what he had done that day racing with his other geese and having to bring them back and then racing the sun and the king was struck with this this incredulous story and he said can you show me such speed as you have against the sun itself no said the bodhisattva can't well can you show me something like it i can show you something like it said the bodhisattva have you swift archers and the bodhisattva said yes uh, and the human king said yes i have four of the swiftest archers in the known world they hand make their own bows and gather a certain kind of twine from the mountains and craft their arrows of adamine and in the slightest, swiftest, strongest wood known and the rarest feathers. Good, said the Bodhisattva. If you'll call them and have a, have a, uh, um, a pillar constructed that I can stand upon, a narrow pillar, and I need a, a brass bell. And the human king said, okay. And they went down from the upper palace and the king gave the, the orders for the construction 
of the pillar. And someone brought the bell, and that was tied around the bodhisattva's neck, and he got on top of the pillar. And these four archers came these, uh, with these amazing six-foot-length uh, bows uh, and these fine, real thin arrows with, with the rare feathers. And there was uh, four women who were also six feet tall. And they faced the four directions, north, south, east, and west. And the Bodhisattva said, when I give the signal, these four archers will shoot their arrows in the four directions. If they're as swift as I suspect, we'll only hear the departure of the arrows. We'll never see them move. And you, my dear king, and all your retinue here, and there were about 10,000 people watching this spectacle all around them in a huge amphitheater, you'll never see the arrows land on the ground. They won't land on the ground. So, wondering, the king said, great, okay, let's see this happen. The Bodhisattva was poised, the bell on his neck standing on the pillars, and at his signal, the archers shot their arrows simultaneously in the four directions. Sure enough, no one could see them fly, but just hear this instantaneous whoosh as they went. And the very next moment, as these swift arrows charged in the direction that they could go for miles, the very next moment, all four arrows were at the feet of the human king. The Bodhisattva was not seen to move, but the bell around his neck was ringing. King just looked at him and said, awesome. <laughs> That's fast. And the Bodhisattva said, as a matter of fact, my dear king, that's slow. That's the, in fact, that's the slowest of my slowest speeds. <laughs> and the king said, I can't imagine anything faster than that. What can be faster than that? The Bodhisattva said, now and he came off the pillar uh, and up close to his friend, the king, who sat down. And the Bodhisattva looked him deeply, right into the heart, through their eyes, said, dear friend, surrounding him with his deep, compassionate presence, my dear friend, faster, than my fastest speeds by 10,000 times, nay, by a 100,000 times, nay, by one, a million times faster than my fastest speed, is the speed with which all the elements of life, even in this moment, are passing away. Thus he taught him the vulnerability of life, how all form is ephemeral. And in this envelope of compassion and deep love and the trust that the king felt for his beloved friend, the Bodhisattva Goose, the king glimpsed this truth. He saw in that moment how all form was now, just now dissolving, hardly having having even arisen, already vanishing. He saw it, and then he fainted. 
passed out. And the king's ministers had to come with smelling salt and bring him back to consciousness. But his friend was right there for him, having suspected that this may happen. <laughs> the king said to his beloved friend, As I, I saw what you were saying and I was afraid. I was afraid of the change. I was afraid of everything falling away. I was afraid of dissolution. I was afraid of death, of how all of life is so vulnerable. And with this honey-sweet voice and that deep, compassionate connection, Bodhisattva said, My friend, it's okay. It's okay. The more you see, the less you'll be afraid. And what you see will teach you the deepest compassion and understanding. And you'll be able then to guide all in your realm, all beings, with generosity and with justice. The king said, Boy, I love to hear your voice. Better yet, I love to see you. Won't you stay here with me? The Bodhisattva said, It's not really the sight of me nor the sound of me that you really love. You love the truth. that I mirror for you, that you have been able to see because of my love for you. It's this truth that you love. And now put it to practice, for it will grow if you do. To practice, use it as the way to carry yourself through life. Hold in your mind this vision of liberation through understanding the truth. And thus guide all in your realm with the generosity and the compassion and the justice that you so love in me. The Bodhisattva went back to his flock and on occasion he'd come and visit his friend the king and the, the king did go on to follow and had more glimpses of the truth and continued to follow these teachings, and indeed did, did rule and guide with compassion all in his realm. What I love in this story is that uh, the teaching that because of the love, because of the presence of compassion, uh, the king so trusted his beloved friend, his teacher, this bodhisattva with all, with all this wisdom. And it was because of such love that he was able to open and receive even the glimpse of the immensity of things as they are, of the truth. He got a pretty heavy hit of anicca, of change, and it's in the underlying dukkha, the vulnerability, you know. And so he passed out, which is... A powerful teaching, too, in that the reason why practice is a process. There are stages of mind development. There are stages of insight. There are stages of enlightenment. Is because we can only glimpse the immensity uh, according to the capacity of the moment, the developed compassion. 
and the strength of heart, the wisdom to hold that immensity of change. Because to see that is quite overwhelming. To see and feel the nature of things is a sudden collapse of everything we thought was true. A sudden collapse of how we construct the world moment to moment. The very velocity of change belies its real nature, gives it this sense of permanence, of solidity, so swift. We can't see its true porous and transparent nature. So we construct this whole reality of seeing permanence where there's impermanence, satisfaction where there's not satisfaction, self where there's not self. The, the nature of the Eightfold Path brings together the love and compassion so that the wisdom can arise. That beautiful image I love in the Pali text of the, the sun of wisdom arises out of the dawn of compassion. Without that foundation of metta karuna, unconditional love and compassion, true wisdom can't arise. It takes touching the immensity of the truth of things with this heart of compassion and love in order to, to really see things as they are, the truth of things. So mostly we, we have a relationship with this phantom reality, kind of dream reality, and mostly we live from this bewilderment. And once we begin practice, we learn more and more to live from the love and understanding. But the veil of confusion is strong. It shrouds experience. And the, uh, the workings of the mind within this shroud are, are striving with attachment, with aversion, with fear and desire. We can't see because of this shroud. One name for this shroud uh, is, is, is a great name, a Pali word called papancha. It even feels sticky. <laughs> it's the perfect word. It means, uh, it means embellishment, uh, fabrication, uh, con construing things out of experience, construing something else. Literally means mental proliferation. The mind that proliferates into something else from the moment of experience of things as they are. So it happens so swift that it's nearly impossible to see things as they are under this shroud. It's the opposite of wisdom. And, and it operates right out of the mental root, the unhealthy mental root of, of ignorance, delusion, unknowing, spiritual slumber. That, that root of the three, greed, hatred, delusion. Of the three, the delusion is the greatest. It's because of the delusion that the, the, the greed or attachment and the hatred uh, or aversion and all their relatives uh, operate. So our, our predominant experience is one of this proliferating mental activity. 
until we begin to see clearly from our practice moment to moment. We, we create in a moment uh, this whole conceptual world uh, with all the proliferated constructs, uh, a like or dislike regard for it and the judgment about it and usually attachment and clinging. Just like that, moment to moment. Attachment, clinging, or it's, it's opposite, condemning, aversion. Uh, so for example, you, if you image sense impressions um, floating by the surface of consciousness like islands floating uh, on the water, and out of the depths of, from this spiritual slumber, there's the impact of that sense impression, the, the, uh, the consciousness of it, and a grasping for it, the arising up of a grasping mind, attaching to that sense impression. Uh, so we might hear a sound, and when, wins- when wisdom awareness isn't present, uh, the sound arises, that's the initial impression, but we're not aware of it as just hearing, as just sound vibration. Immediately it's th- there's the concept tied to it. It might be the concept of there's a guy hammering outside the meditation hall. And from that hammering, uh, a, 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 the concept of the hammering man comes a construct or a set of constructs, the story about it. This guy out there hammering, what's he doing? Uh, and judgments about it. He shouldn't be doing that. Who, where's, this, you know, where's the staff? This is supposed to be a quiet meditation hall. Let's get rid of this hammering guy. Let's hammer him out of here. And the, all the the dislike and the aversion and, and the whole proliferation of mind that comes from that. I can't meditate, I can't concentrate with this hammering going on. The relationship with that experience then is not with the immediacy of what's happening, which is just unpleasant sound. That's what's real, that's what can be experienced in the moment. Anything else is the relationship with the idea, with the concept, not the immediacy of experience. It's like being removed. Experiencing the moon through the clouds. This is dull, diffused light, but not the crystal clarity and connection with moon as it is. That's how this proliferating mind, or papancha mind works. It often dresses up objects of experience to look either attractive or repulsive. The object of, of desire or aversion. Uh, and then through those, the mental constructs, the interpretation of the experience, the likes, dislikes, and judgments, we, we become identified with the object. That is, it's sort of self-referenced, as if this is happening to me, what do I do with it? If I like it, I want it, I grasp onto it. If I don't like it, it shouldn't be here. I'm going to deny it or push it away. It's not what's really happening. The awareness and the wisdom awareness aren't engaged with the reality of the moment. It's a relationship with mental constructs. It's a relationship with the interpretation of the world, the dream of the world that we just constructed out of Papancha mind. It's like, uh, the, the I think it's a Zen story of uh, the Zen 
monk practicing in a, in a cave alone. And finally, kind of out of boredom and distraction, he paints an exquisite tiger on the walls of the cave and then looks back and is terrified, thinks it's real. Same kind of analogy that we construct the moment's experience and think it's real, either to be clung to or rejected. An old friend who's been meditating for, for 30 years and had a lot of retreat practice in the early years in Asia. And it came a place upon his practice at some point where a lot of fear and apprehension arose. Uh, it felt later in retrospect, you know, like a lot of old stuff, early life karmic knots, so forth. But he didn't know it. He just reached this place of real anxiety. And so for some 15 years, he, he stopped being able to have deep retreat. Because he'd get to that place of deep anxiety, and he'd panic, and he'd stop practice. Many times he'd go back to Asia, uh, to a monastery, you know, from a long, long ways away, thousands and thousands of miles. He'd come, and he'd try, and uh, within a week, he'd fly home. So, finally, and he was yet really deeply immersed in the Dhamma, just this relationship to this terror. He finally came and started coming around the retreats uh, I was teaching, various places, including Burma, and just sit up to a certain point and stop, you know, and not sit for a while, and then if he could, he'd, he'd sit again and stop. So one of these times, and that was sort of moving along, <coughs> one of these times he came to Burma. In fact, it was his first time coming to Burma. And his first time back to Burma in, in many years, like 10 years, from the time he stopped going, you know, or he'd go and come back within a week or so. And he had a plan that he'd try and... and do so much sitting every day. But within the second day that he was there, he, he just started feeling this overwhelming anxiety. He, just, he didn't feel uh, safe enough to see what was happening, what was going on. And he wanted to leave. And I said, it's okay. It's okay. You can, you can, you can leave. It's okay to leave. It, it, everything to him was just really threatening. And then he, you know, he just relaxed and he got, thought, okay, I can go home now. And then while he was relaxed, he, and he listened to uh, one of the Dhamma talks from the, the Saira, who we teach together with there. And, and something just began to shift for him. He came back and, and we spoke. And we talked about the process of what was happening, how when he'd get to a level of this powerful emotion, how he would interpret it, how his mind would proliferate. That certain, he'd experience either certain body sensations or distressing thoughts, or both, in either order, sensations first or thoughts first. 
And then that would trigger some memory or some sense impression or some recollection of an interaction. And sometimes that would be the first experience. In fact, uh, all those things happened for my friend because he came back into an environment that the sights, the smells, uh, the interactions, all the sense impressions uh, reminded him immediately of a previously threatening uh, experience. So those thoughts, those distressing thoughts, those sensations that arose from the memory, from the sense impressions or the interactions, triggered in him that uh, previously uh, threatening situation that happened to him, where he then perceive imminent or approaching danger. And then he'd feel apprehension and close down and it freeze, back off. Uh, and, you know, so we kind of went through all this and identified how that closing off, how that response that became a like flight or fight response or just not wanting to feel the feeling or feelings of longing for something safe, or depressive feelings, fear of loss or abandonment, that there was, these all acted as a kind of protective uh, measure, a, a belt of protection, a survival strategy to deal with this, this overwhelming experience. And from that there'd be more body-mind sensations, distressing thoughts and physical sensations that were associated with that anxiety. And then it would be interpreted as, this is awful, this is terrible, this can't happen, I have to leave. I mean, he'd, he'd really get freaked out. So he kind of went through this a few times, verbally, and then just experientially guiding him through what happened. And then, you know, he, he, he'd sit with it. Feel the breath, he'd feel a little bit of the anxiety. Uh, but then, bring more of an awareness to that before it was proliferated into all those distressing thoughts, reactions, uh, defense responses to it, shutting off, the apprehension, uh, the, the, the signal of flight or, or fight uh, or uh, longing for something or the fear of a, a loss and abandonment. You just kind of see saw how that was working in little moments with enough space in between to stay in the present moment. Because every time he was pulled out of the present moment was when the experience was unbearable. As long as, as, long as he could find a way to stay in the present moment, uh, he could bear with the, what was happening. And slowly now, over the last few years, it's completely changed and re-engaged his relationship with practice. That's a, an example of how this proliferating mind you know, works in our lives. Papancha thoughts, the stories, uh, perhaps initially really protective to us before we have the ability to open up to their overwhelming pain. Same way that the king's delusion helped protect him from the immensity of things as they were until he felt enveloped by the power com of compassion uh, from, his, from the bodhisattva, the goose. Uh, and then able to glimpse the immensity of truth of things as they are. Initially, these 
these things are protective by nature. Uh, but later they become an, insul an insulation from the truth. Very much like the novice kayaker, you know, or canoeer, getting in the canoe or the kayak and feeling insulated from the water, not connected with the water, with the current. And therefore, protected in one sense, but in another way, insecure. This is not really in touch with the current and is more vulnerable to tipping over. In time, though, uh, with more accomplishment, the kayaker feels at one with the kayak or the canoe. It's just an extension of the body, which is an extension of the mind. And so the, the, the senses, all the six senses, extend out through the kayak or canoe into the current, connect with the current, or one with the current. And that's where one becomes an accomplished canoeist or kayaker. No separation. The canoe then is, is a real vehicle and not an insulation from the experience. Same way, as we begin to understand how these protective measures uh, or the process of proliferating mind, uh, you know, delude us. In a way, it's sort of like ignorance is bliss. But at a certain point, that's no longer uh, helpful. In fact, it's even quite hindering to living a real life. And we have this urge, awakened urge, uh, to see things as they really are and to live from the truth. So we start to see through this transparency of Papancha mind. It's really important to be able to see Papancha mind. It's really significant um, leap in practice when we actually appreciate without judgment how little we're truly mindful. Without judgment, just a, a kind of appreciate the degree to which mostly we are living a relationship with a dream, with the inter with a interpretation of things, rather than the reality of things as they are. To know the nature of conditioned experience, to know the degree to which we are deluded in the way we see is the beginning of awakening. Then we start to know what is really mindful and what isn't. We essentially have to learn surfing. So I better explain that. I've been talking about the Eightfold Path and talking about the, the wisdom part of it this week. Before last talk, I was talking about the meditation part. Uh, right effort, our energy, mindfulness, concentration. The, if you think of surfing, it's a nice, nice thing to think about. You're on the surfboard. The right effort is just the right number of strokes to get on the wave. If it's too little, you're not going to connect with a wave. If it's too much, you're not. The, the front of the board will do what we call pearl diving. <laughs> we'll miss the way. So we work at <laughs> experience pearl diver. We work the timing of it. You know, right effort is just the effort necessary to connect with this moment's breath, this moment's experience of sound. 
this thought, this emotion. Just the right effort and strokes. And soon you start feeling a connection, a feeling of the wave. That feeling lifted by it, like that kayaker, soon the board isn't an insulation, it's just a connective vehicle, and you start feeling it. That's right mindfulness. Right concentration is the the oneness, the union with the wave, and in the ensuing stability, moment-to-moment focus in staying with the wave. So the skilled surfer becomes one with the wave and rides in a real balanced way. The same way, each moment's experience is, is like a wave. The arising phenomena or wave of activities of mind or body. Just a wave, moment to moment. Sometimes we see it as particles. Sometimes we see it as a wave. But that's the nature of our experience. Conditions arise for a series of thoughts, emotions, images, and fall away again. Conditions arise for uh, certain sensations to appear and disappear. Through all the senses, waves of, of light, sound, smell, taste, touch, and emotions. Each moment is just like that. The, the, the surfing metaphor of practice is just the effort to connect with that moment's experience, the mindfulness that feels and notices its nature, the concentration that becomes one with it, a union, if you will, with that moment's experience and without holding on. You know, the surfer that tries to hold on and manipulate the wave inevitably uh, wipes out. We have a lot of wipeouts. That's okay. We get up and we paddle out again. (laughs) So, there's there's different styles. Different styles of surfing. Different styles of surfing. There's short board surfing. Short board surfing is uh, kind of the latest new wave, you know, cool surfing the last 20 years or so, where they, it's about speed and radical moves. They really carve the wave. But still, the good surfer is not trying to make the wave different. He or she's ever responsive to each wave which is different than the previous wave and it can do different things. So responsive to how to do it but really gets into it. Uh, where in the old style surfing, the longboard surfing, uh, you can call, it's, a, it's like soul surfing they call it. It's more laid back, graceful, just cruising, kind of like Michelle was saying, along for the ride. <laughs> and, and you still... It's the same thing. We still are real responsive to the changing nature of the wave. But, but you don't have to do anything special. It's just connecting with the wave uh, and cruising on it. it likewise, in, there's different styles of, uh, of being mindful. Saira Upandita can express two poignant styles. One of his styles, the image that he loves to use, the graphic traditional image from the Pali text is that being mindful is like walking across one of those pedestrian suspension bridges you know, over a deep gorge, single file only, balancing on your head a, a boiling pot of oil. 
And behind you is a, is a swords person who, if you spill even a drop, will lop your head off. <laughs> so what quality of mind do you need to do that? <laughs> Paranoid won't work. <laughs> and too laid back won't work either. It's that unique match of, of relaxed but alert presence. So Sayyidah loves that image because he could do it. He could not only do it, he'd also love to be the swords person behind you. <laughs> but another side of Sayyidah is, is more playful. Uh, when he was just out in Hawaii a few weeks ago, um, one day we took him out in a friend's boat. He didn't even want to go on the boat at first because he, said, he asked me, is this for amusement? <laughs> is it, you know, he's 78 years old. He's been a monk since he's nine. And he's a very impeccable monk, a very impeccable sila. And you know, uh, among their 226 rules, or 27, is, is uh, monks don't engage you know, in music, dancing, amusement, and that sort of thing. And uh, I had to think quick on my feet. You know? <laughs> And I thought the yogi who owns the boat and, and the skipper of the boat, I thought he was actually, by former training, a scientist. So I said, so I think he's a scientist, Sayadaw, and he can teach you all about the waves and currents uh, and so forth in the ocean. And fortunately, that was true. <laughs> <laughs> Took him out, and, uh, but as a kind of protection, he brought along his, his, his Burmese edition of the Dhammapada, the aphorisms of the Buddha. And he, and he told me when I went to pick him up, he says, in here, you know, uh, ocean, ocean. And he was referring to all the, all the aphorisms and teachings, the, the metaphors that the Buddha uses of ocean. You know, the ocean has but one taste, uh, the taste of salt, likewise. Uh, the Dhamma has but one taste, the taste of freedom, and many other images of, of ocean. So his way of protecting himself in case it was amusement, it turned out to be you know, just an awesome adventure for him. He'd never been out there before, and, and he learned from the skipper uh, the, amazing, the amazing nature of the ocean, you know, that the ocean has mountain ranges uh, that are immense, and valleys and so forth that are imperceptible. And all you know the currents and all this, and it rained while we were out there too, and one of our Hawaiian yogis just happened to have this kind of fold up uh, plastic cover that folds up into a real small little thing, and kept saying, uh, you know, this is this is it's, it's it's yellow, it's yellow, saying which would be an appropriate color for a monk to wear, and it's only two dollars, it's only two dollars, and he. Uh, <laughs> And the Sayadaw put it on, you know, and, and he kept, the Sayadaw kept looking down at it, and then he pointed and looked around at us, and he says, this is first time. This is first time. I've never worn anything like this before. <laughs> <laughs> and then we took him to the big island to uh, look at this, uh, this, this land that we're trying to uh, negotiate for a center out there, and drove them all around, and got a flat tire on the land, uh, and then, you know, fixed that. And we were a little late getting to the, back to the airport, and so uh, we missed the flight. And 
or, uh, had to wait for another flight. And that flight, uh, it was broken. The plane was broken. So we were waiting in, in a lounge, and then they kind of announce the flight, and we go get in line, and then they say, no, it's still broken. And we go back into the lounge, and then again they announce that we went out, got in line, and it still wasn't fixed, and, and went back into the lounge. It, it, it turned out to be a seven-hour delay. And, uh, and so going back and forth into the, the lounge, the, you know, when we take the refuge, refuges, we do Buddha Dharma Sangha, and then uh, for the second time, do the Ampi, and then for the third time. So the third time, we go in there, and Sayadaw just looks up and says, Tati Ampi. We got back to Honolulu about midnight, and all this time he, he said nothing else. He'd go back and he'd just sit, do nothing. I mean, at 78 years old, and having several monasteries uh, in different parts of the world, he, he, uh, he goes to bed about 11, and he wakes up at 3 and meditates till 6 every day of his life. It's really inspiring. He just sat said nothing, but we were all really clearly wearied and tired from everything. Got back out and, and finally into the plane, into Honolulu. And the last thing he said, for the, as once we got back to Honolulu, before he went, home, uh, went to his place to rest, he just looked at us all and said, this is samsara. Wisdom is the, is the mind of light. Insight opens in the mind or heart in the same way that uh, a lucent energy would illumine a field that was previously dark. Wisdom is that which recognizes what is real from what is not real. What's real can be experienced in the present moment. What's real is feeling the true nature of a breath, not the idea or image, not what we think we're experiencing, but is directly experiencing the vibrations, pressure, expansion, heat, tightness, tautness, relaxation, smoothness, relaxation, vibration, whatever we're experiencing. With each breath, each breath can be a completely new experience. And the awareness of it. Those two streams of phenomena, those two waves of physical and mental activity. And whatever else, whatever, whatever other mental activities are seen and known. Calm, concentration, restlessness, anxiety, fear, desire, joy, happiness. That's all that's happening in a breath. When we walk, the wisdom mind illumines the true nature of walking. When you feel carried by the current of experience as it is, sometimes walking along, one feels like a total stranger. That there's just these processes happening. Even the idea of leg lifting gives way to the experience of 
lightness, heaviness, vibration, tensity, stress, strain, unfolding, stretching, reaching, lowering, vibration, tingling, contact, pressure, tightness, tension, just and the awareness of them, and the awareness of, of other mind states, concentration, energy, investigation, as it's seeing these things. Just these two streams, their interconnectedness, just process, mental forces of, of as intention, physical uh, results, or physical forces as cause, mental results. Tingling in the body, mental joy, or mental joy, tingling in the body. Just seeing that whole interconnected field of cause, effect, or interrelatedness. All unique features of experience. Wisdom also illumines the universal nature, not just the unique nature. And that's when we dip into what the human king saw with such intensity, a glimpse of the radical nature, and the immensity of what's called anicca, change, impermanence. Hardly does experience arise on any level, conditioned experience, and it's gone. And it's unreliable to bring any lasting satisfaction, the dukkha nature. And it's empty of happening to anyone. Any self-referencing is just a phantom, a thought, a delusion. There's no third process. Things as they are is just this flow of mental, physical energies in ceaseless change as a current of experience. The Buddha often referred to it as empty phenomena rolling along. The the intention of these insights is is to loosen our attachments. Loosening our attachments, we're able more able to hold the vision of the island, the, the vision of peace, the vision of the Tathagata, one who has become authentic, a deep vision. And, and not to be clung to. We don't cling to these insights, anicca, dukkha, anatta, as doctrine, as dogma. They are only vehicle. As, as Sayadaw once explained to me after giving me an instruction of dropping all method, all technique, do nothing, was his only instruction. And after being confused with that a while, he said, in the end, it all goes. The eightfold path, all of it goes. The canoe goes. You get to the island. You get off the canoe. That the, 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 the eightfold path, the technique, all the teachings are by way of being a vehicle. Nothing to be clung to. So right from the moment of our first moments of mindfulness, that attitude of non-attachment to anything whatsoever. We take all instruction and in guidance and the teachings of the Eightfold Path simply as skillful means, as a vehicle. This way we keep the island in mind. Can you see the island? I can see it in my mind. Good. Keep the vision in your mind. If you lose the vision, you'll be lost. 
Sit. May we all practice to become authentic, the Tagara. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.